This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. You've seen the ads on television. Get rid of your used gold. Get rid of the stuff that's been sitting in the door for the last 20 years. Bring it into us and we'll give you cash for it. It sounds pretty enticing, right? Uh, they also could say, hey, uh, if you've just ripped somebody off and you've uh, stolen some merchandise or jewelry from them, you can also take it into us. Because, I mean, oftentimes they don't know this. Well, there's a, a new set of rules that City Council is uh, about to vote on. It was passed at the Planning Committee yesterday. And uh, we're told today that this actually could just be the beginning of a, a series of pieces of legislation to try to deal with this new phenomenon that is uh, causing some angst, obviously, in the community. Sam Barilla of the Council for Ward 4 joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Morning, Sam. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, Bill, and yourself? Good. Let me, uh, first of all, uh, talk about what happened yesterday at Planning and Active. I know you were certainly aware of, of the motion that was going forward to this, and I know you've actually got a companion motion to this. So let, let's talk about what they did yesterday and, and, and why this was so necessary. Right. Okay, well, about four years ago, uh, Jody uh, Formosi, who really must be applauded for for really taking the lead on this particular issue, um, she lives on the East Mountain. She contacted uh, not only her counselor, uh, Jackson, um, who really has been a champion on this front as well, but also contacted a number of others, uh, other counselors, including myself. And at that time, she was uh, somewhat disillusioned by the fact that the pawn shops were turning a blind eye to the merchandise that they were purchasing, hence perhaps creating an underground market or being part of the problem as opposed to being part of a solution. So as a direct result and as a result of Councillor Tom Jackson's incredible work on this file, it literally led to um, a series of consultations and bringing in all the stakeholders and drafting uh, legislation and or a bylaw which incorporates a scenario where we can separate the bad operators from the good and ensure that those that are, and mo- the vast majority of these operators are good operators. And, and, be- and they can become a part of a solution and not part of the problem of the underground market that many of were profiting from. So as a result, we now have a systemic process in place uh, through this relationship built, with the, built between the industry, police, and the city, Uh, to ensure that there's accountability on both fronts. So now uh, the industry is required by law to provide weekly updates of of any merchandise purchased at the pawn shop level. And that, in essence, then becomes a cross-reference list for police of any uh, any stolen goods that may have uh, occurred in that that last week or beyond. So it, it does lead to a a real systemic process that finds real solution to a presenting problem that we encountered once uh, Jody brought this forward years ago. You made a, an interesting point that I think bears repeating here too, Sam, is that uh, this is this is not to cast aspersions on, on the industry and on people that own pawn shops and, and, and these sorts of facilities, uh, these uh, you know, where you can take in your, your gold, et cetera, and get cash for this. Uh, I mean, you sat on licensing for years. You chaired the committee for many years, of course. Uh, and, and, you know, there there are one or two bad apples, and, and it can put a bad reputation on everybody. But I guess the, the intent of this law, this bylaw in this case, is to extract those bad apples. Uh, it's, not, it's not a shot at the industry. It's a shot at the bad apples within the industry. Exactly. And by doing this, not only are we targeting the bad apples today, but we're also mitigating any new developments along those lines, because now with these new restrictions, it becomes far more difficult for them to operate under the systemic process, which leads to more accountability. Now, you, obviously the staff and, and as you as counselors who were interested in this and, and knew the story of Ms. Formosi about this, 
uh, had to do some research on this. Were we doing enough in the past? Was this a tool that was missing? Uh, were police dedicating enough time to this? Were, did, the, did the city have the resources to be able to deal with these problems? Because I know as we hold, uh, heard Jody's uh, story, Jody Formosi's story on this, she basically took this upon herself to go and do the investigation on this uh, and put in a lot of time and a lot of legwork uh, to make this done and then presented you with the results. And it was, it was a pretty shocking story, wasn't it? It really was, and disheartening as well in the sense that um, everywhere she turned, she was faced with frustration. And her frustration became ours, and as a result, uh, it led to the bylaws that were passed. And I think in the past, the both the police services need to be commended because they were using the tools uh, that were at their disposal at that time. And the good players or within the industry were voluntarily doing a, a number of the issues that we're now legislating. So... Now we're making it mandatory, which, again, squeezes out the bad players, basically just enhances what the good players were already uh, doing and leads to a more cooperative relationship between the city, police, and the industry itself to ensure more accountability and protect people from uh, this type of uh, nefarious behavior. Now, the way the process is going to work right now, there's going to be a list. In other words, the people that do this, uh, whether they're pawn shops, or I guess there is a, already a bylaw in for pawn shops, but, but maybe you could touch on that in a second. But they're going to have to report to police on a weekly basis now. This is the stuff that I've garnered this year, this week, rather. Uh, and and, and is it, how do they identify this? Is it with numbers? Because do they or do they not have to provide photos of this, some of their material? No, as photo, well? photos wouldn't be required, and apparently it would become what one of the industry leaders uh, stated that they purchased anywhere from seventy to 80,000 pieces uh, within a week. And that just would bog down their, from an operational standpoint. So they are taking uh, down descriptions as well as any type of serial numbers, if it's a bike as an example, uh, and, and then forwarding that over to police, and then they're going to cross-reference it uh, with whatever information they may have. Important for a couple of matters here. First of all, that that if you have become victimized by this or you've lost something or, or there has been a break-in as there was in the Formosi household, uh, extremely important, obviously, that you report this to the police right away so that they, they can have a list in which to cross-reference with. And secondly, I guess, uh, and now we're getting into the insurance and the things, I, I suppose, here, Sam, is before that even happens, uh, you should be preemptive and, and have some idea exactly what's in your house and be easily yep. identifiable so that you can give this information to police. That's very true. And I personally had three bikes stolen within the last four years. And and if they want something, they'll go to any um, extreme scenario to, to get what they're trying to get to. So the bottom line is you need to protect yourself and, and have that information. Take your own pictures of your items. And then that then you can provide to the police uh, at the time that the crime occurred, and then that could be cross-referenced uh, with whatever information the pawn shops are, are providing. Now, we talked about another scenario here, Sam, and, and, and clearly this has come up, and you've heard of this, obviously, and I'm sure you've seen some of the ads, because some of them have come up on social media, about these uh, these fly-by-night businesses that'll pop into town for a day or a weekend and set up shop in a hotel room someplace, and they're there for three or four hours. Is there any way the city can trace those? Because it's I'm not so sure that these guys would be under the guise of this umbrella legislation that you've developed here. And, and that is uh, becoming a chronic problem throughout the province, if not the country and beyond. Um, and what, what occurs there is that there's some suspicion that it is an organized underground type of approach where that uh, that they're only specifically targeting stolen merchandise. So... Uh, we can regulate that. The problem is enforcement. And uh, the, the fact that they're in and out within a day or two, 
doesn't lead to a reactionary uh, scenario for us because because of the lack of resources available to us. But something we need to, um, to to study, but more importantly, we need to create perhaps the resources to to combat it if indeed it's becoming a as chronic as people are suggesting it is. So uh, kudos to the city staff and, and, to, and to you councillors who, who listened to Ms. Formosi's story, obviously, and decided to do something about this and become proactive on this. And and this, obviously, is, is what uh, comes as a result of that. Uh, and as with other things, of course, the code of committee meetings, it has to be endorsed by the full council. I don't think that's going to be a problem. But uh, with the information you have garnered from this, you actually want to expand on this, right? Well, it's um, an expansion to the to the concept, and yeah. one that I'd like to I will be presenting is a motion to have staff look at the feasibility with respect to scrapyards, as an example. We have uh, had hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of copper metal stolen uh, from city property and even private property, and there is no checks and balances presently. So, if somebody, if you and I have a thousand pounds of copper and we go down to the scrapyard, we simply they simply weigh it, they cash us out, and we're gone. What we need is uh, a similar process where it's regulated uh, because obviously any type of crime ends up costing us all. Uh, and in this particular case, it's costing the city and the taxpayer by extension. Um, so in essence, we need to protect ourselves and create a system that makes not only, not only does it deter someone from, from stealing copper or any other metal uh, for, for profit, but also ensures that the scrapyards are held accountable and that they don't become part of the problem but rather part of the solution. It's interesting when, when I, I saw this and they said precious metals, all of a sudden copper's become a precious metal, hasn't it? Oh, very much so. And it, uh, it fluctuates based on the market, but it, it is a, it's, a, it's a very costly, uh, it's a costly, significant, significant cost to the taxpayer when, we, when people are stealing our wires, not only wires from lighting and what have you in our parks. We had a significant problem down at Globe Park. Uh, the, the pedestrian bridge going over to QEW was not lit. I put a complaint in. Staff investigated and said, well, the reason why it's not lit is because they stole all the wire. So it's up at Turner Park as well. So it's citywide. And uh, so, and that ultimately costs the taxpayer. So we need to protect the taxpayer, but at the same rate, uh, create a deterrent for those that want to engage in this type of criminal behavior, but also help the police in ensuring that they have somewhere to turn in the event that something occurs where the scrapyard is not being held accountable. They're not profiting from this crime uh, and the police can now investigate accordingly. Well, there's a safety issue with this, too. You've been on, for many years ago, you talked about this, when there was a, a, a plethora of these incidents that were going on with stealing copper wire. And, and the problem, the sad problem, is a lot of the people that are doing this, first of all, don't know what they're doing. Uh, they put their lives in jeopardy and other lives in jeopardy because the, the chances of electrocution in some of these buildings is pretty rampant. But as you say, there's no tracking device after this. I mean, you know, they, they could go to a scrapyard and the guy could say, where'd that come from? He says, well, I got it last week. Well, how are you supposed to be able to tell? I mean, right. so this this brings them under this same umbrella that we were just talking about, where now there's a reporting mechanism where they have to actually start to chronicle exactly what they get and when they get it so that the police can cross-check that. Exactly. So it basically opens up the entire process as a partnership between the industry, uh, police, and the city uh, that we collectively work on preventing or having anyone profit from the crime itself. At present, if there are nefarious players out there, they can profit all day long and no one, there's no checks and balances in place. Is there a, an, under, an underground economy that's going on here, Sam? Has, has staff investigated this right now? Uh, we mentioned some of the fly-by-night businesses, and, and I'm sure that some of these are legitimate, but, I mean, there is a concern that I've heard from police services in the past that a lot of these places are setting up shop, are, as you suggested, just looking for a quick hit. 
uh, and, and getting merchandise that uh, could be obtained by illegal means and then just blowing town. And, of course, there's no record, aside from where they were that particular day, as to what they brought in, what they paid out, etc. Well, you don't have to look too far uh, for, for this underground market. Just look at what happens with the vehicles stolen from the area, vehicles stolen from this area up uh, that ended up in the reserve. It totaled nearly a million dollars. I think nobody is naive to believe that there isn't a huge underground market that, that stretches beyond our local boundaries, in, even in down south and, and, and even overseas, where a lot of this, the stolen uh, goods, such as vehicles and bikes and so on, are, are thrown in pieces and, and, and shipped to, to the Soviet Union, as an example, the former Soviet Union, which is so, apparently one of the most uh, predominant destination spots for vehicles and for bikes. So, and, and then from there, they've created their own industry. Uh, the bottom line is we know there's a problem. We just need to put a systemic um, process in place to try to mitigate it. To believe we're ever, ever going to eliminate it, I think, is unrealistic, but we have to try. And by trying, I mean at least we, we're mitigating the, the impact. On that point, one of your council colleagues, uh, Matthew Green, uh, in your neighboring ward there, and he's in Ward 3, of course, uh, did not support this and said that it doesn't go far enough. Uh, is, is there something more that could have been done to make this more effective? I, I'm sorry, I wasn't aware that he didn't support it, uh, and I'm not sure what the reasons were, but I can always talk to him and find out. And respond. So I, I I can't really answer that only because I'm not. Well, aware. I know that one of the things he mentioned was the point you alluded to just a couple of minutes ago that a, a, a photo should be part of this process too, that so police can have a quick reference point. Yeah, and I'm not. I believe the the police and the industry um, were on board and and not supporting that. So I, I would have to support what what they concluded and and the common ground that they developed, and believe that um, that's something we could look at in the future if we're not seeing any positive uh, outcome from the, the present bylaw. And again, this is a, going to be a work in progress. Uh, nothing's um, written in uh, stone. And I, at the end of the day, if we're not seeing the same, if we're not seeing the outcome-based uh, benefits, then that's something we can always evaluate down the road. When are you going to introduce your part of this motion, uh, the, the companion piece to this about other precious metals? Well, I'm going to just serve a notice, but I have to work with staff on the wording and, and see what stakeholders need to be incorporated uh, for the process to move forward. But it will be, at first, a feasibility uh, to determine how we implement the bylaw itself. Ward 4 Councillor Sam Marula, th- as always, Sam, thanks so much for the clarification on this. As a winch, and uh, this will go to Council next week, and we'll see how Council, the whole Council responds to this. Appreciate your time today. Likewise, Bill. Take care. Yeah, we too. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Well, we're heading towards the end of June, and uh, if you want to go back to your school days, uh, the end of June meant report card time, right? Well, there's a report card that is uh, now out, too, about the cleanup of Hamilton Harbor. And, uh, yeah, we do need to pay attention to report cards. We've all learned that over the years, haven't we? This one is called Towards Safe Harbor. Uh, the report card released this week by the Bay Area Restoration Council. And, uh, obviously, the Randall Reef is going to play a large role in the uh, in the reporting and, and uh, indication as to how our harbor is and how healthy it is. But there are many other factors as well. To talk about this, we're pleased to welcome Chris McLaughlin to the program, Executive Director for the Bay Area Restoration Council, as he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show. Morning, Chris. How are you doing today? I'm great, thanks, Bill. How about yourself? Good. Uh, The good news is we're finally, after years of talking and stalling and governments changing and everything, getting the Randall Reef looked after. That's a a process, but that's a big part of this, isn't it? Well, it's a huge part of it, yeah, especially because the project's been such a touchstone for the community. Right. I mean, if you think of if the, the average person on the street thinks of one project related to cleaning up the harbor, Randall Reef's going to come to mind. Right. But unfortunately, although it's 
a big one. It's not the only one. And so, you know, the grades aren't an A plus yet. We're not uh, we're not there yet, but we're a long way along along the way. Well, when you look at the 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 scope of what you guys are looking after here at the Bay Area Restoration Council, uh, and and you look at the physical space in which the Randall Reef takes up, it's it's not that big. I mean, it certainly has a huge impact, Chris, but there's a lot more to, going on around there outside the Randall Reef. There is certainly there are other areas of contaminated sediment, which is why we haven't shot all the way up to the top grade yet. Um, it's six and a half hectares, but it, the, con- the containment facility, the big steel box that's being built, and it's nearly completed um, in terms of the steel wall around the worst of that material at Randall Reef, would hold enough material to fill Cops Coliseum three times. So it's a phenomenally huge uh, undertaking to, to build this thing out in the water, and then uh, what's going to happen after this summer uh, when the construction is finished, for the next three years, we're going to dredge material from other areas in the harbor outside of that steel box. That material is going to be put into the box. And there's another two years that's, that's going to be taken to, uh, to, to compress all that material down, dewater it, and then put a, a cap over top so it can be used by the Port Authority. And, and it will uh, become our Pandora's box, I guess, won't it? It will. Hopefully, you know, in another 50, 100 years, there's a the technology to turn it all into chocolate pudding. Now we're talking. <laughs> until, until then, the important thing is it's, it's separate from the water, separate from the ecosystem at, that, at this point. Yeah, so, well, we'll worry about that. That'll be a challenge for future generations. They can, they can look into something like that. Uh, l- let's talk about something else for a second here, too. Uh, back in the 1980s, uh, uh, the city council of the day and, and of course, the Bay Area Restoration and, and many other folks around here worked on something called the Remedial Action Plan and, and, and said this is going to be our plan going forward. It was supposed to be the template and kind of the, the, the path for us to, to try to find uh, a better way for us to, to be stewards of, the, of our environment here. How are we doing on that plan? We're doing pretty well. Uh, one, one challenge is the fact that this report card measures the last five years since the last time we did a report card. And it's, it gets harder and harder the longer the, the time passes to remember back to how bad it, it actually was. And so I think for many people, maybe they don't realize the significance of the upgrades to the wastewater treatment plants, for example. Uh, they don't realize how, how fundamentally important it is to, to deal with Randall Reef and the other contaminated sediment areas but also how, because how far we've come. I mean, it's, it looks pretty much like it did five years ago for if you're standing on the shoreline. And so it's easy to forget how, how, uh, how much progress has been made. And it's also easy, sorry, difficult to get to, to understand or appreciate really how difficult some of the, the ongoing challenges are and that this is a marathon, not a sprint. And we've just got to keep a constant attention on some of these problems. Well, yeah, there are those who are listening right now that do remember some of those bad old days. For sure. Uh, and, and, you know, there was, how many, it wasn't that many years ago, Chris. I mean, we used to simply just dump sewage into the water and just figure, well, you know, don't worry, it'll, you know, it's, that's a big pond there. Everything's going to be just <laughs> fine. Uh, we're smarter than that in many ways right now. We also, by the way, have to remember that we're not alone in this endeavor, too. And we talk about the bay here. We're talking about our neighbors on the other side of the bay, too. Uh, at Burlington and, and the initiatives they've undertaken to try to help us to, to get this thing uh, back on track. Well, one important thing to mention certainly is that Halton Region, which controls the sewage treatment plant uh, for Burlington and then the city of Hamilton and the Woodward plant down in the East End, um, those two plants alone represent almost 50% of what goes back into the bay. So when the upgrades to Woodward, that is creating tertiary, uh, the installation of new technology over the next four or five years, when that's completed and Halton's already finished on the Skyway side. 
When that's completed, the water quality in terms of the amount of phosphorus coming out of those two plants, and remember almost half of the water returning into the bay, will actually be, lo be below the remedial action plan or the RAP target for phosphorus, which will have huge implications then for water quality, uh, the algal blooms that we see in the summer that shut the beaches and so forth. Uh, fingers crossed, and that's why the forecast in the report card is an up from the consensus of all the scientists and other people we had working on this over the last few months, the consensus is that we should see improved water quality as those uh, wastewater treatment plants come online and as some of the other projects that are ongoing that we've heard so much about and if so much money has been invested in, as those start to, to have impacts in the years to come, uh, we should start to see those improvements continue. Every time we start having discussions about water quality in the harbor and, and, and the bay itself, uh, phosphorus, the, the word phosphorus comes up. Maybe you could just touch on why this is such an important element and why it needs to be addressed. Well, phosphorus is a natural, uh, naturally occurring nutrient in, in ecosystems. You couldn't have an ecosystem, in, uh, we wouldn't have the bay or the, or the, the marshes um, without it. And yet, when you've got three-quarters three of a million people living in the watershed right around it, uh, you've got inputs way over and beyond uh, in terms of what the what the ecosystem can, can handle. And so you get an overabundance uh, of, uh, of life. You get the algal blooms, for example, that many people are familiar with that turn the harbor green. And the problem is with, when, those little, when, those little, uh, when those little organisms die, that process uses oxygen, and that's taken away from all of the fish. So it's, a, it's sort of like this cycle that repeats itself over and over again as we continue to put inputs of phosphorus into the, uh, into the ecosystem, into the bay, and the, into the marshes like Coots Paradise. The problem is that it used to be in the, you know, we go f back 50 years, or we don't even have to go back 50 years, 40 years into the 1980s when the first regulations of those pipes that would have dotted the landscape, especially across the, the south shore, um, when those started to be regulated, the job got a lot harder because now the sources of contamination, the sources of phosphorus, for example, have moved far up into the watershed where we live. There are driveways and, and parking lots, farm fields, and so forth. All of the construction sites, all of these are, are ongoing sources uh, of the problem. And we still have to cut that amount of phosphorus in the bay in half, unfortunately, and the job has gotten a lot, a lot tougher. It's, we've picked the low-hanging fruit, if you will. So that high fruit, we've got to become more sophisticated in terms of our policy and our management of the landscape in order to get up to get that high-hanging fruit. Well, it seems to be having a positive effect, though, doesn't it? Because I can recall, I guess it's probably 15, 20 years ago now, maybe even more recently than that, though, Chris, uh, just about every August in this area, uh, our, our, our drinking water used to have a bit of a, a taste to it. And uh, I remember asking about that at a council meeting, and they said, well, it's, it's the algae blooms that, uh, that occur this time of year, and the, not a whole lot we can do about it. It's not bad for you. It's not perfect, but it's not bad for you. I, that hasn't happened for the last number of years. Are, are we making progress there? I think we are making some progress. Uh, Hamilton's drinking water, for example, does come from Lake Ontario, which yeah. is indicative of even larger problems as the lake is also affected. Um, it's sort of like if you think of, we used to have smog days during the summer, going back to the early 1990s. Yeah, and, yeah. and people, you go, oh yeah, right, we used to have those. What happened to those? Well, improvements have been made. So the nice thing, I think, or the impo an important thing to think of is that many of the problems that we used to have were system-wide that the, the harbor used to be uniformly dangerous in terms of the amount of bacteria and chemicals, heavy metals, you name it. Um, that's not the case any longer. The, there are large areas of Hamilton Harbor that are 
free of bacteria, for example, even though we have localized problems like at the beach. And so obviously that's going to draw people's attention because it's right there at a spot where we want to engage with the water and we're told that we can't. So it sort of becomes, you know, a, 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 the, the beacon for water quality across the board, and that's simply not the, not the case. Um, we've got very localized problems now, maybe a sewer overflow, for example, um, birds and, uh, and bacteria at the beach, for example, um, where we do still run into those large-scale problems uh, is the case of the, the algae blooms, but also I think public perception is also a, a really overarching or large-spanning uh, problem that we need to deal with in terms of changing the perceptions. Um, we're not the place that we used to be, and we have lots of reason to be uh, very proud of that, but we have lots of, uh, lots of hard work to go to meet those goals of the Remedial Action Plan. One of the, the most advantageous and I think one of the most wonderful aspects of our environment, of course, here is Coots Paradise. It's, it's a, a real gem for us. Uh, it was in pretty rough shape a few years ago. Uh, we, we want to bring that back. You guys have taken some very proactive measures uh, to try to make that happen. How's that working? So it's important to note, first of all, that BARC is uh, one of 19 partner agencies on the Remedial Action Plan. Everybody from uh, the federal government and other government agencies, the province, the cities, and uh, in, in this case, the Coots Paradise, importantly, the Royal, Royal Botanical Gardens, which controls and manages all the lands around Coots Paradise. And from their calculations, we have about half a marsh back. Uh, there are goals for the amount of plant life in the marsh, and in Coots Paradise, about half of that goal has been met. The issue is that we're in a constant negotiation with Mother Nature. The whole remedial action plan is one big negotiation with Mother Nature. And so, you know, most, most years you're three steps forward and two steps back. Mm. Last year, with the low water, uh, it was just the RBG uh, described it as three steps forward and five steps back. And this year with the high water, that's, that's impeding our ability to get our volunteers at Bark and the RBG uh, into the marsh to do new plantings and so forth. But we go back in there and some of those plantings from 10 or 15 years ago are thriving. And uh, it's not something you can necessarily, you're going to see from the street, right? You've got to get back in and look at it. But the good news is that it's there and it's, it's a really critically important part of our community. Let me talk about something else. I had a discussion a couple of weeks ago, Chris, uh, with some of the uh, the Great Lakes mayors. And, and of course, th- that encompasses, well, St. Catharines, Niagara, Hamilton, Chicago, and, and right down the list, obviously. Uh, they are very cognizant of what's going on here. They're, they're very concerned about some of the Trump administration uh, policy reversals and some of the things that, that we've tried to do. But one thing that, that I think is is, is something that they've been talking about for a long time right now, is the impact of invading species and invasive species. Right. Uh, and that's having an impact right here in the Hamilton and in, in, in the Coots Paradise area, too. It is. Well, so invasive species are species that weren't here prior to development, and uh, they compete with the fish that were, the ones that have been native to this area for time in memoriam. So uh, the issue is that they are brought here, say, in the ballast water of ships that come from Asia or South America or someplace, and they uh, they get dropped off here, and they don't have any um, they don't have any nat- native natural competitors, and uh, oftentimes these species are tolerant of the polluted water that we've created in the bay, and so they take away resources, they take away space, uh, they can outcompete and, and outlast, outreproduce uh, many of the native species that we're um, that we're struggling to to reintroduce and to to repopulate. So. 
in a, in a way, we're kind of stuck with them. And, and some of these species weren't around when the RAP got started. So the good news is that the Remedial Action Plan has a process to revise the, the end goals and to deal with and bring in new research and so forth, new programs to try and deal with some of these issues as we move along. Because we're, hard to say, we're stuck with some of these things, unfortunately. Um, but it's, it's uh, the scientists, I can tell you, some of the programs underway uh, are looking at how can we deal with or cope with those invasive species while at the same time figure out how to, to, uh, to repopulate some of those native species. I'll give you an example. You've probably heard of the story of the walleye being reintroduced. Yeah. It's a really remarkable story. A top native fish predator uh, in the harbor uh, that has obviously uh, a long history ecologically here, and then, uh, which is great news. And in fact, even better news is the fact that the province of Ontario a couple of years ago decided to make Hamilton Harbor a destination for some of these things, uh, and that's in competition with areas all over the province for those for those precious provincial resources, right? Where are they going to put their prioritized? Well, they prioritized Hamilton Harbor because it looked like conditions were, were good enough to try this reintroduction. At the same time, we've got a tremendous number of goldfish, for example, a huge number of goldfish. We've got a lot of other kinds of fish, too, that we don't want, and we've got too many of them. So it's this really delicate balancing task. You know, last year we had not enough water. This year we've got way, way more than enough water. And so it's, you know, from one year to the next, we're dealing with this constant uh, turning over of priorities, you know, which is the crisis this year and so forth, and how is it impacting our goals moving forward. And all of that uncertainty and those challenges, they're really difficult to convey to the public. Uh, the three steps forward, that's easy to cut a ribbon and celebrate, you know, a really great project happening. But at the same time, when we have those years when, we, when we're really hit hard, you know, and we lose plants and fish, uh, in, in Coots Paradise Marsh, for example, like we did last year, we have these high water levels like we do this year, a lot of extra sewage going into the bay. It's really hard to, to keep people's focus on the long-term goals that are slowly but surely being realized. Well, and there have been some things that have been done about this. Of course, you do have a, uh, uh, a barrier that's set up there to try to keep some of these invasive species out of Coots, for instance. But i got to think at this stage, Chris, with the high water levels, that's become somewhat of a problem because, I mean, the, the barrier only goes so high, and if the water level goes up, these guys are just going to screw right over top of it. So I know the staff at the RBG have been working, like, blindingly hard for the last several weeks to, um, to bolster that structure, and, in fact, they have managed to keep the carp out. Um, that's not the case with Grindstone Marsh, which is another important area. That because you, that was a natural barrier. Well, I guess sort of natural because you used the old trees, didn't the you? Christmas trees, that's yeah. right. People may, may not realize this, but if you go down to uh, the bottom of the Valley Inn Road, uh, where it was closed there a few years ago, you can, you can hike on the, on the pathways along there and see these Christmas trees built up to keep the carp on the one side and then the restoring plants and, and, and wildlife on the other side. And, of course, the, high, the water is so high, higher than, than in 100 years, of collecting this, this, these uh, numbers on water levels, um, the carp were able to get in and, and, and over that very easily. So that's been a, that's been a setback. The good news is, um, in contrast, that the fishway managed in, on Coots Paradise managed to keep the carp out. The issue being that uh, the carp are down at the bottom. They're very large. They're very strong. And one flip of the tail, uh, and they're rooting down there in the mud for, uh, for something to eat, that uh, it, it kicks up plant life like crazy. So you just can't, you can't get anywhere. You can't make any progress. 
when you get to the report card itself here, things like healthy water and habitat, you give a C plus, uh, fish and wildlife populations a C plus. And I think you've outlined pretty strongly exactly why uh, that's a C and, and, and some of the challenges that we're facing right now. But, you know, if we can just blue sky for a second here, or, or maybe more importantly, blue water for a second here, mm-hmm. about where you want to be. And you, for instance, you talked about the beach. Uh, and, and down at the harbor, and you know, the, right by the walkway there, and, and it's, it's so sensational down there, and it's a great walking path. Uh, you'd like to think that at some point we're going to be able to go swimming there in the summertime. Uh, the, obviously, the bird fecal matter is a problem like that. Is is it fixable? Is there something we can do to try to move that process along? I think there's lots that we can do, certainly. So the city of Hamilton hired a consultant last year to look at the beach closure issues and try to come up with uh, a plan moving forward and hurt all the cats, if you will. So the city of Hamilton's got a department that looks at uh, uh, measuring the quality of the waters. I should say like the safety of the water, the amount of bacteria, and whether the beach should be open or closed. They've got another department that's looking at, uh, that's responsible for managing uh, parks like Bayfront and the beach. So they're working together this summer to try and implement some bird management measures to keep the bacteria out of the water and away from the and clean the sand because the sand is so low it stays wet and the bacteria can thrive in there for a long time. So both the water and the sand are a problem where bacteria is concerned and the city is looking at uh, easy, relatively low-cost measures to try and keep that bacteria uh, out of the beach area at Bayfront, for example. There's also recommendations down the road for doing other things if that doesn't work. And uh, one of them would be, in, 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 uh, or at least it's a priority of mine, is something other than a beach to swim at, Some, something in deeper water. And uh, my, my two words, Bill, rope swing, okay? <laughs> so, <laughs> right? Like, I like it. I like <laughs> absolutely. it. Absolutely. Um, uh, so th- to go back to the point about the harbor not being a uniformly dangerous place any longer, there, there would have been a time, I mean, we own La, the city of Hamilton owns LaSalle Park in part because conditions on Hamilton's side were so bad at one time, the city bought a park on Burlington's side in order to get Hamiltonians over there in a safe place to, to swim, and even that didn't work. quality of the water over there was, was so poor. Um, hence, were the, hence the whole system was dangerous. The whole place was polluted. Um, if you go back to that famous quote from the 1960s, that Hamilton Harbor was a stinking, rotten quagmire of filth and poisonous waste. Um, we didn't come by this, our, our reputation as a community, uh, by accident. We came by it honestly. And the harbor and the quality of the water had a lot to do with that, right? The pollution going into it from mm-hmm. industry. It was so visible from the Skyway Bridge to so many Canadians um, over many decades that uh, um, we, we're really having a hard time shaking that. It's important to realize that there are lots of really, there's lots of clean water in Hamilton Harbor, and I know that's hard to believe for many people, but it's true. Now, we're not going to suggest that just because there isn't bacteria, say, at, at, uh, at Randall Reef, that people should go and jump in the water there. That's not the place for recreation or out in the shipping channel. But in the West End, uh, in the West Harbor, there's, lo- there's going to be increasing amounts of, of opportunities for, for recreation for getting people not only down to the water, and we've done a really great job of doing that, Oh yeah. but getting safely back into the water, I really think that that is the holy grail of restoration, the ability to get safely into the water. And the second part of that would be the ability to change perceptions in the community so that people actually believe that it's true. 
Chris McLaughlin, Executive Director for the Bay Area Restoration Council. Great talking with you again, Chris. Uh, I think we're all focused on that same goal, and let's keep working towards it. Thanks for this today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Take care. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. I want to give you an update on a story that we brought to you some weeks ago. Uh, residents in Hamilton and Thunder Bay have started to receive packages from the Ontario government they're trying to get people to sign up for this basic income pilot project that we had talked about uh, some weeks ago and the government had initiated. And Hamilton, of course, is one of those sites. Tom Cooper, the director for the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction, is with us here in studio. How are you doing today, Thomas? Hey, Bill. Good to see you. Uh, let's, let's talk about the rollout on this now. And uh, I know that at the time of the announcement, you had expressed some concern about uh, the details and what was going to be happening right now. What have you seen? What have you heard? <laughs> well, we've seen a few more details, not all the details we'd like, but uh, the provincial government has, uh, from our understanding, started sending out letters, uh, packages really, to, to Hamilton households, uh, inviting them to uh, participate in applying uh, for the basic income pilot. And these packages are being sent randomly uh, to households in Hamilton. Uh, they're going to start off slow, from what I understand. So probably, probably a few hundred, I would imagine, as opposed to a few now, thousand. And when you say randomly, it, it's certainly within a certain income bracket, though, isn't it? No, it's actually not. Oh, uh, really? So it's so randomized at this point. Um, you have to have a certain income bracket to participate. But just in terms of who receives the initial invitation, our understanding is it goes out far and wide. And if you fall within the categories that they've outlined in their initial letter, so if you're if you're um, uh, earning a little bit below uh, thirty four thousand a year, if you're a single person, you have the possibility of applying. And uh, so uh, we understand these are white packages from the Ontario government. It doesn't say basic income up front, so be careful you don't throw it out as junk mail because it could mean up to uh, $17,000 in additional <laughs> income for you uh, for the next three years if you want to participate. So we're certainly encouraging people to, to take a look at the package. Um, it's going to enable people who are eligible, uh, so people who are currently on provincial social assistance, whether Ontario works or the Ontario Disability Support Program, or if you're going to work and, and not earning enough at your jobs uh, above that uh, 34000 you could potentially uh, submit the application and maybe you will be selected to participate. And there's no guarantees in this whatsoever. Uh, it's very randomized from what we understand, and it's very arm's length from really any community input. This is the government uh, for the sake of making sure the, the program is is done well and is evaluated properly, you know, have, have pretty tight control over how this uh, package is, is being sent out. Uh, but we'd certainly encourage uh, people, if they do get the package and they're interested, to call the government's 1-800 number that's, uh, that's on the package, uh, email, ask some questions. Uh, we understand there won't be um, an office set up, but there will be people who can help support people through the process of applying and let them know if, if it's in their best interest in terms of financially, certainly, to uh, to apply to become part of this basic income pilot program for the next three years. Now, let me ask you about this random aspect of this, because this is uh, intriguing. Uh, so they're just, this is, boom, they're just throwing these out there. But, I mean, somebody could receive this in the mail today, and they, they that individual that received it could be making 75000 bucks a year. Yep. 
Yeah. Well, they right off the top, no, they don't qualify. That's right. But that's a wasted application, isn't it? I, it isn't. Well, I suppose it is. Um, but in order to do this right and to make it as randomized as possible, um, they didn't want to target specifically, for example, low-income neighborhoods. They didn't go by... Um, tax filer data. Um, they're they're really going uh, just through a random list of of addresses they have. I understand through Canada Post, and uh, and and so it is. Yeah, you're right. In a sense, I guess it is a little bit of uh, a waste for maybe 75 percent of the people who get them. Uh, but for those 25 percent who are eligible, who do earn below that 34,000, uh, who might be on social assistance programs, this might be a good fit for them for the next three years. And, and I'm not doing this geographically. I'm not saying, hey, don't send any to uh, Stony Creek or to Ancaster because there's no poor people. There. That's ridiculous. Of course there are. There are people yeah. that are living below that threshold in those areas. I get that. But my my concern at this stage is if you know if say twenty five or thirty percent of these things that are mailed out uh, go to people that don't even qualify for it, it is going to go into the blue box. Yep. And people who probably need to get that information are not going to get it. Well, that that's a possibility as well. This is not bad. This is not on you. I mean, uh, this is just yeah. the government's uh, you yeah. know this methodology is the, here. Yeah, this is the I think the best advice the uh, government has received from uh, other jurisdictions that have done these sorts of pilot projects in the past. Um, certainly, you know, we'll point to uh, potential problems uh, in the coming months around uh, around how this is rolling out. But I think for the time being, um, I, I think we need to give it a chance. I think we need to uh, certainly encourage people who do receive the packages, if they feel uh, they're eligible and, and that they can benefit from a basic income, to, to certainly look at doing that. There's going to be lots of people, particularly those on Ontario Disability Support Program, who get additional benefits. Um, perhaps some families get rent uh, geared to income housing, uh, perhaps get uh, child care subsidies, uh, who might potentially lose some of those subsidies. So they have to crunch the numbers and make sure this is a good fit for them. Um, because one of the one of the tenants really of basic income is that there aren't the same level of, of supports provided to people who are in receipt of a basic income as there would be necessarily for say somebody on social assistance. So it's really, you know, you get sent a check and, and do with it as you will. And there's there there is in a sense a much more dignified uh, approach to doing that. On the other hand, for people who may need supports and and may need may need help maneuvering through what could be a complex system. Uh, we're a little bit concerned about that. So we're certainly encouraging people to ask questions, call that 1-800 number, um, email, uh, and, and if you're not happy with this response, talk to a local advocate, uh, whether it's a local uh, community legal clinic, Hamilton Community Legal Clinic, for example, or a local social service agency that you might deal with um, to, to show them the package and, and, and see if they can help you uh, with some of the questions you might have. Now, the, here's the part B of my random uh, rant, I guess it is. Uh, you say that uh, the selection is going to be done on a random basis, too. Uh, so there's going to be no evaluation of each application. In other words, if, if, if uh, you know, citizen A does qualify and sends this back, and citizen B qualifies, is it really just luck of the draw that one of them is going to get that, or do they say, well, yeah, both of them are, 
Are, like, I, how do they make that determination? Yeah, it's it, it, it's a little bit unclear to me, Bill, at this point, how they're going to make that determination. Uh, very generally, I've heard they'd like about 30% of the participants to be on social assistance programs and about 70% to be people who are who are working and, and not earning enough to, to move themselves or their families out of poverty. Um, so, so, that's, so that sounds to me like there will, will be some internal evaluation. I, think, I think there will be. They'll be looking at an outside evaluator uh, to really see study how the how the program rolls out and there is going to be a control group as well so there's going to be a group of people I'm not sure if it's the same number of participants um, so there's 4,000 across the province who will be receiving a basic income over the next three years whether there's 4,000 other people they're going to study to see if you don't get a basic income what happens to you and, and do some comparing and contrasting at the end of the day at the end of this pilot um, you know, the provincial government's going to look at the results and see, you know, have people who've been receiving a basic income, have they been able to maintain their affordable housing, for example? Have they been able to eat a little bit more healthier? Are, 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 are they staying healthier? Are they going to uh, doctors or emergency rooms more or less as a result of receiving a basic income? Are they able to afford medication? So these are some basic things that the basic income pilot uh, hopes to answer. In Hamilton, we may not be able to look at the community impact as much because there's only a thousand people participating mm-hmm. here and in Brant County, and we probably have close to fifty thousand people uh, just in receipt of provincial social assistance programs. Probably another uh, thirty thousand people who are who are working in po- and experiencing poverty. Um, so we won't be able to necessarily tell whether there's an upturn in in economic activity locally because people are getting a little bit more income going to the grocery store and that's driving economic growth and creating local jobs. That might be able to be more of a uh, assessment in a place like Lindsay, Ontario, where they're also rolling out the basic income pilot, but it's much more, it's a small, much smaller community and a, a larger group of participants. With the work that you have done over the years, Tom, uh, both in McQuestion and, and of course with the Poverty Roundtable now, uh, are you concerned about the word getting out on this? And, and the reason I'm saying that is I know that you've been on numerous times talking about this, and, and that's great. I mean, the more we can talk about this, and, and I know the spec has published some stuff about this, uh, but you know as well as I do, a lot of people don't read the paper. The, a lot of people don't have the radio or the television on necessarily. There's there's an information gap an, yeah. awful, an awful lot of the time, and I know you started to talk to us about this even back when you were working at McQuestion Legal Services, where people said, I didn't know I, I could do that. I didn't know I had access to that. I didn't know that person can help me. Uh, is there a, a concern on your part with, with that experience and that knowledge that a lot of people who might be qualified and might actually be helped by this program are never even going to hear about it, even though we've been talking about it for the last few weeks? Oh, absolutely. And it, it's not even necessarily... Uh, some, of it, some of it's a language barrier in some cases. I mean, there can be a lot of different circumstances. There's huge issues, and uh, it's it's not even a lack of information. Sometimes it's too much information. We hear so much uh, in today's modern age about programs and, and mm-hmm. potential entitlements out there, and, and people often, you know, get confused by by everything they're hearing. You know, at, here's a program that the provincial government's rolling out, um, and has there been enough community information? Well, I'd probably say not. They've uh, they've tried, I think, to reach out to the community as as best they can over the last little while. So there was a uh, information session held on on Monday night. Uh, you'll recall, Bill, that we held a uh, town hall on basic yes. income a couple of weeks ago. We had great turnout, 200 people there. But again, that's a small percentage of the Hamilton population. So 
I, th- I think word of mouth is going to be critically important for, for this program. Again, keep an eye out for that white envelope. Um, there's a booklet in there. It's about 29 pages uh, long, and there's a lot of information. Um, so we're certainly encouraging people to do what they can to, to read through it. And if they need help, ask somebody, uh, whether it's a social service agency or, or a friend or neighbor, uh, to, to help them get through the booklet and find out if it's a good fit for them. I think the larger issue you're talking about, though, is really around ensuring people know uh, the programs that are available yeah. to them. And that's one of the reasons we started the uh, Hamilton Tax Awareness Campaign, you know, ensuring that people were filing their income tax, uh, for example, to get things like the Canada Child Benefit, which could be a huge influx of, of income for, for low-income families with kids. And uh, we're, we're hoping to, to really roll that out even more next year and the year after to, to ensure that uh, people who aren't currently filing their taxes do so, that, so that they, they can get the extra income that's entitled to them. Yeah, and and I haven't seen the form yet either. Obviously, I'm sure we're going to hear about this in in the days ahead. But uh, I, I hope they've simplified it because I mean, if it starts looking at the tax code, a lot of people are just going to throw it on the desk and figure out I'll, I'll do that later, and, and or not at all. Uh, so that there has to be that element. One of the other things you do at the Poverty Roundtable, though, is you keep your eye on the political tea leaves about what's going on. Um, don't know whether you heard there's an election next year in the province of Ontario. <laughs> really? Yeah, that that may have crept into the news cycle in some places. Uh, have you talked to anybody else? This is obviously a liberal policy because they, Kathleen Wynne, of course, being a liberal premier at this time. This is a long term, though. This is going on. This pilot project's going on for a number of years right now. Yep. Have you talked to, to either Andrew Horvath or Patrick Brown about the fact that if, in fact, they were to be the leader by whatever happens in the election next year, uh, about their commitment or non-commitment to this program? I mean, if somebody is going to be involved in this pilot project... And the day after the provincial election next year, the new premier, if it's not Kathleen Wynne, says, yeah, well, we're not doing that anymore. Uh, it it kind of throws everybody into a bit of a tizzy. Yeah, and that's uh, that's certainly a concern. We wouldn't want to see people who've been uh, committed to this basic income pilot who uh, could potentially be receiving 17000 or, or or more a year just have that plug pulled out from under, under them. Um, so we're hopeful that uh, any political party uh, that becomes the next government in Ontario uh, will continue this for the uh, for the uh, three, full three years. We'd, we'd, of course, love to see a basic income rollout for everybody in Ontario. Um, but I think we do need to study it and, and, and look at some of the challenges. The, even poverty advocates aren't convinced about basic income. Uh, some see it as a distraction. Some see it as an excuse for governments not to do some of the other things they need to do in society, like building more affordable housing, creating childcare spaces, ensuring there's fairer and reasonable social assistance rates. Um, others see basic income really as the way of the future, uh, looking at how the, the uh, workforce is changing and, and the fact that there's going to be a lot more automation in the future. Uh, we may not have as many jobs and Will people uh, working fewer hours and, and maybe for less money uh, need uh, government support to, to ensure that uh, they can buy their basic needs and, and that the economy keeps running? So basic income kind of answers some of those questions. I'm, I'm you know, very open to the idea of testing a basic income. I'd like to see what some of the drawbacks of it are as, as this pilot project rolls out. But, you know, unfortunately, it, 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 you, 
you alluded to it, Bill. It's kind of like a lottery. People are, are receiving these invitations uh, to apply randomly. And um, there's going to be lots of people left out. Um, if, a, you know, 700, 800 people in Hamilton are participating, there's going to be tens of thousands who still have to rely on woefully inadequate social assistance rates to get by. And we know most of those people on social assistance are, are the ones going to food banks in Hamilton because the rates are so low they can't afford their basic necessities, let alone housing or food or, or personal hygiene products. So there's lots of issues the provincial government needs to look at moving forward. I hope all political parties come together uh, cooperatively to address poverty. Yeah, it would be very instructive to find out just how uh, Mr. Brown and Ms. Horvath actually feel about this uh, question I'll certainly ask next time they come in. Thanks so much, Tom. Great having you on again. Thank you, Bill. Tom Cooper, of course, uh, from the Hamilton Roundtable for Poverty Reduction. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.